Well, let's begin with a word of prayer. O Lord, our God, you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We look to you as our covenant God, for you are a God unto us and unto our offspring. Please bless this time in which we study your word, your truth, by which we evaluate the ideas and proposals of men. Anoint us with your spirit of wisdom and discernment that we may be able to know what you have revealed, the promises that you have made, and that we may be able to distinguish truth from error, that we may be able to cling to what is good and abhor what is evil. Give us clarity. Give us faith. Give us Christ. We ask in His name. Amen. Our lecture topic for this afternoon is the Federal Vision, Doug Wilson on Infant Baptism. So we're continuing our series on the Federal Vision, pivoting now to consider Doug Wilson and his distinct perspective on infant baptism, which I think it's fair to say is highly influential, increasingly influential in the evangelical and reformed world today. Doug Wilson on infant baptism. Now, we noted previously that in the writings of Norman Shepard and James Jordan, if you recall those lectures, that the Federal Vision promotes a form of baptismal efficacy or attributing certain powers and effects to baptism. It promotes a form of baptismal efficacy which serves to undercut a biblical and confessional understanding of a number of doctrines that we hold dear. The biblical confessional doctrine of regeneration. The biblical confessional doctrine of perseverance of the saints. And the biblical and confessional understanding of assurance of salvation. We've seen how their view of presumptive regeneration, assuming baptized children are regenerate or that they're going to be regenerate or that they're elect or that baptism communicates regeneration. All these types of things serve to undercut the doctrine of regeneration, which the Bible says is by the Word. James 1, God brought us forth by His Word of truth. We see as well 1 Peter chapter 1 that the Word that lives and endures forever through the preaching of the gospel is the seed of regeneration. So it undermines our doctrine of regeneration by the Word and Spirit of God. These teachings undermine the doctrine of perseverance of the saints because, of course, if children are regenerated from the womb or from their baptism, and we know the fact that many of them do not persevere to the end, then it would it would imply that not everyone who is regenerated perseveres to the end. I mean, that's a pretty obvious logical problem that they have. They claim to be Calvinists. They claim to believe in perseverance of everyone who is truly saved. But then they say all covenant children are presumed to be saved, so on and so forth. We'll look at this. But we've seen it in the past. Also, assurance... Once again, they try to increase people's assurance by saying, look to your baptism. 
The problem is, they then say that many baptized people go to hell. So, how can people make their calling and election sure on the basis of something that itself does not guarantee final perseverance? So, in order to flesh out a little bit of the general perspective of the federal vision on these topics, we're going to look at some quotations from Rich Lusk. He needs no introduction. We've considered him in past lectures. This is in his chapter on this subject of baptismal efficacy in the book Federal Vision in 2005, edited by Steve Wilkins. He says this, Thus, the Westminster Standards teach that in baptism, the thing signified, which is nothing less than union with Christ, regeneration, and forgiveness, is truly sealed, Confession of Faith 28.1, conferred, Confession of Faith 28.5, applied, Shorter Catechism 92, and communicated, Shorter Catechism 88. He goes on, it is also inadequate to suggest baptism is merely a strengthening and assuring ordinance rather than a saving ordinance, end quote. What's he saying? He's saying not only is this true, but the Westminster standards, he claims, teach that baptism not only signifies or points to the reality of regeneration and forgiveness, but that regeneration and forgiveness are sealed. Okay, well, that word could be understood in different ways, but he goes on to say that these things are conferred and applied and communicated in baptism. So that baptism is not something that provides a lifelong strengthening of our faith and our assurance. As Peter says, baptism now saves us, right? Peter in uh, what is it? First, First Peter 3, he doesn't say, baptism saved us at our baptism in, in, you know, when we were first baptized. He says baptism is now saving us. In other words, throughout our entire Christian life, that when we believe in the truths that baptism signifies, we can then, having believed, look at our baptism and see a confirmation of God's covenant faithfulness and see these truths and we increase in our assurance and in our faith. And that enables us to be delivered and saved from ongoing battles with sin and temptation and unbelief. Peter's saying, baptism is now saving us. But according to this, Rich Lusk is telling us, the Westminster Standards teach us that baptism saved us when we were baptized. This is... uh, a very troubling doctrine. He goes on, quote, Biblically, if we turn to Exodus and John, we find that signs are powerful, transformative, saving actions of God, end quote. This is a Roman Catholic tactic. That's, I'm not sure how else to put it. It's a tactic of Rome to take the fact that circumcision is called a sign in Romans chapter 4, and then to say a sign is not just something that illustrates God's covenant and so on and so forth, but rather it's a sign, it's a miracle, it's, it's a magical experience that transforms people by the saving power of God. That, that's how they interpret the word sign. Lusk is jumping on board with that Roman Catholic tactic there. Quote, he says, we might say 
The unbaptized child of the covenant is betrothed to the Lord from conception onwards, but the marriage, that is the actual covenant bonding, takes place at baptism. Or to put it in more theological terms, God is already in the process of drawing the child to himself from the moment of conception. But this work isn't complete until the child receives the sign of initiation. He goes on, the threshold into union with Christ, new life in the Spirit, and covenant membership in the family of God is actually crossed when the child is baptized, end quote. He says this is what Westminster teaches. He says this is what the Bible teaches, that from the womb our covenant children are being drawn by God and that that is consummated or completed in the act of water baptism. They're united with Christ, he says. They have new life in the Spirit. So, you know, sometimes the Reformers and the Puritans will use language that at first glance makes us feel uncomfortable, but what they're, what they're doing when they speak of union with Christ or when they use terms like this, they're speaking of a federal covenantal status of someone who's a member of the visible church. Uh, but Lusk is clearly not limiting himself to those categories when he says new life in the Spirit. He's saying baptism conveys regeneration. New life in the Spirit. That's what new life in the Spirit is. You can also see a footnote 2 clarifies some helpful things about the Westminster Standard. Shorter Catechism 91 says the sacraments become effectual means of salvation, not from any virtue in them or in Him that doth administer them, but only by the blessing of Christ and the working of His Spirit in them that by faith receive them. End quote. So the confessional teaching is that baptism is an effectual or effective means of giving saving grace to God's people, But the saving grace that baptism communicates is limited to those things that can be received by faith. Now, biblically, unless a man is born again, he can't even see the kingdom. Regeneration precedes faith. You don't receive regeneration by faith because you can't have regeneration without faith. Faith comes after regeneration, not before or during regeneration. We receive it by faith. No, The standards here are blockading the way of this idea of baptismal regeneration by saying whatever means of salvation, whatever salvation or saving grace is communicated in the sacraments, it presupposes a faith that is already there. So when we baptize an infant in infancy and we raise them, and by God's grace they know the Scriptures from an early age, making them wise unto salvation, and then they, they look back on their baptism, it confirms the reality of God's faithfulness to fulfill His promise and to save every believer in Jesus Christ. And it's by their faith, looking back on baptism, that baptism is now saving them, delivering them, strengthening them, enabling them to, to beat the snot out of the world, the flesh and the devil. Okay, That's what baptism does but the confession and the catechisms are clear it's it's got to be received by faith therefore regeneration is not communicated through baptism larger catechism 162 
a sacrament is an holy ordinance instituted by Christ in His church to signify, seal, and exhibit unto those that are within the covenant of grace the benefits of His mediation to strengthen and increase their faith and all other graces. So what he's saying Westminster rejects is actually what Westminster emphasizes. Now, we're not going to get into this, but you can go to Confession of Faith 28, sections 5 and 6, and there is a treatment there of the efficacy of baptism, and there are some statements there that connect the idea that when a person is later regenerated and they had been baptized in infancy that there's a connection that's in one sense the grace of baptism manifesting itself and i would suggest to you that although people like wilson and lusk and the federal visionists are then wanting to say that that means baptismal regeneration i'm submitting to you clear statements in shorter catechism 91 and 162 that that is a wrong interpretation but that is something for another time. Perhaps we'll do a, a series on infant baptism and deal with that. But, but the point is, if it's received by faith, Shorter Catechism 91, it can't produce or communicate faith by way of baptismal regeneration. So that is clear. Whatever else is up for grabs in chapter 28, that is crystal clear. Unless you're going to say the standards are at odds with one another, and that's a whole other question. Lusk again. Quote D. He says, quote, I know of no theologian in history, Roman Catholic or otherwise, who has taught baptism automatically guarantees final salvation, come what may. By contrast, at the same time, the Reformed confessions do bind us to believe in a certain limited version of ex opere operato. I think he spells that wrong because Wilson spells it differently, and I think Wilson knows Latin better than Lusk. But ex opere should be opere, not opera. Ex opere operato. And he says then, its efficacy is inherent and objective yet conditional, end quote. Now, ex opere operato is the Roman Catholic heresy that says that the sacraments work as they work. I mean, they just work. They just do it. It doesn't require the Holy Spirit. It doesn't require... It's just that these sacraments are objective and they work as they're working. And this is the crass sacramental theology of the Roman Catholic Church, which all the Reformed confessions reject explicitly. I mean, you can go to Westminster and Three Forms of Unity. They reject this teaching. Uh, All the great theologians of the Reformed faith, they all reject. This is just garden variety error that they're constantly refuting but he's saying in fact by the way wilson later says that he rejects ex opere operato so so lusk who knows where he's going with this but it's it's erroneous westminster does not teach us that reformed confessions do not teach us that they don't say that a baptism uh, has an efficacy in other words regenerating people that is inherent and objective yet conditional and that, well, it communicates new life in Christ, but it doesn't guarantee final salvation. Regeneration is conveyed, but perseverance is conditional. That's Lusk's doctrine that contradicts the perseverance of the saints. That's just leading us to the, really, the heresies that James Jordan was promoting. But this is their view. Again, another quote. 
He says, quote, We are not to try to convert our baptized children as though their spiritual experience had to fit the revivalistic pattern. Rather, we teach them to persevere in the faith and grace that they have already received in baptism, end quote. So don't evangelize your children. Wilson elsewhere says, I don't like to call it evangelism. Lusk is saying, don't try to convert your baptized children. Uh, The idea that they need to come to personal conviction of sin and put their trust in Christ, that's a revivalistic paradigm. Uh, Instead, we teach them to persevere in the faith and grace they received at baptism. So how do you teach your children concerning the gospel? You tell them you're already saved little Johnny, little Susie, you're, you're already saved, you're already a believer, you already have new life in Christ, you already have grace and salvation, and you just need to persevere in it. So the first thing you've got to believe is that you're already saved, and that baptism already saved you. What's the point of trying to comment on that? It just refutes itself. But uh, he, he goes on, quote, a baptized person is a Christian until and unless he apostatizes. He goes on, counting and treating our baptized children as Christians is not a matter of pretending or presuming. It is more than a judgment of charity when we tell our children that God is their father and that Jesus is their savior, we are telling them something true. By the way, when you have to say that, when we tell them that, we're telling them something true. Why did you have to add that? Usually when people have to add that, it means you should be suspicious. You know, of course, you're supposed to be a minister here. Of course, we're telling them something true. But he he adds that. When, When we tell them Jesus is their Savior, he says, we are telling them something true and helping them to internalize their covenant identity. He goes on, true baptized children can renounce their father and become prodigals. He goes on, covenant members who fall from grace can only expect God's harshest judgment, end quote. So, little Susie, Jesus is your Savior, but you might still go to hell. Jesus, they shall call His name Jesus, for He saves His people from their sins, and then let some of them go to hell and receive the harshest judgment. You see, the federal vision redefines what it means to be savingly adopted by God as our Father, redefines what it means to have Jesus as our Savior. If Jesus is their Savior, how are they going to hell? This is the federal vision. Temporary adoption, temporary salvation. Now, I'm not suggesting that there aren't other categories of sonship in the Bible, and rightly so, we could distinguish between Acts 17 in one very tiny sense, all mankind is God's offspring. We can look at Israel, God's covenant people, largely unconverted, largely reprobate, and yet he says they're my firstborn son. There's a general federal sonship. But it's clear here that Lusk is not speaking of those categories when he says you're telling them that Jesus is their Savior. So that's the federal vision view. Now, you can see the footnote from Steve Wilkins in an interview with Christian Renewal Magazine in August 2003. He says many of the same troubling things. But let's look at Doug Wilson. In some of Doug Wilson's earlier writings on infant baptism, which include To a Thousand Generations, 1996, 
and Standing on the Promises, 1997. He openly repudiates baptismal regeneration and expresses a healthy measure of caution regarding the presumptive regeneration of all baptized infants. So if you look at some of these earlier writings, which do have some problems, we'll point those out. But one of the things that you notice is that in these earlier books, he openly repudiates the idea that baptism saves or regenerates children. He openly expresses concern that we should not presume the regeneration of all baptized infants. Very interesting. Let's take a look. Wilson, in his book, To a Thousand Generations, quote, on the basis of what has been established already, we can say, I'm not even sure I could say this, by the way. What he says here is, it's unbelievable that he says this in light of what he'll say later. He says this, we can say that water baptism is not sacred in itself. It signifies a holy Christ. It is not an automatic means of imparting grace. It is a sign of grace that has been proclaimed and displayed in the covenant of grace. And we stop there. This is the kind of language that Federal Vision says you're hedging on the fullness of God's covenant promise to save our children and you're hedging on the reality of baptism when you want to use words like sign and signify and proclaim and display. This is Wilson's vocabulary in this book, which, by the way, he wrote for the purpose of self-consciously in, in the preface for the purpose of persuading Baptists to become paedo-Baptists. Interesting the way he, he writes here. Continuing the quotation, Wilson says, it is not a means of removing sins, but shows that the Spirit can wash cleaner than the purest water. In other words, water baptism, he says, is not a part of the gospel. It accompanies the gospel as a sign. He goes on, Peter makes a plain statement, 1 Peter 3.21, that it is not the physical water which has the saving effect, quote, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, end quote. Salvation, he says, is accomplished by the resurrection of Jesus and our union with Him. As we saw earlier, this union is brought about by another baptism, the baptism of the Spirit. He goes on, Christian baptism, says Peter, is typified in the Old Testament, but it is not to be considered as something magical or automatic. The Lord is sovereign in salvation, end quote. There's not a ton to disagree with in there. Interestingly, fascinating. Next quote, Wilson. To be explicit, all teaching that grace is somehow imparted to an infant ex opere operato, automatically by some kind of ecclesiastical magic, is rejected here as sub-Christian. Indeed, as it will be seen, it is sub-Jewish and detrimental to a faithful preaching of the gospel. Water baptism does not regenerate, it does not save, and it does not cleanse. End quote. So according to Wilson, you're not even a Christian. Or, I mean, however you want to take sub-Christian. It's not even within the bounds of Christian theology to teach baptismal regeneration. It's sub-Christian, he says. Very interesting. Again, quote, 
We need to get to the point where no one would dream of accusing an evangelical paedo-baptist of holding to the false and destructive doctrine of baptismal regeneration, end quote. So Wilson is going off as only Doug Wilson can against ex opere operato, against baptismal regeneration. He's calling it sub-Christian. He's calling it false. He's calling it destructive. He's saying we should get to the point where essentially we've eradicated from the face of the Christian church anyone who teaches this. Such in terms of evangelical churches, to the point where no one would even dream of accusing us of teaching this. Very interesting. Wilson again, quote, does the Abrahamic covenant automatically include our children then? Certainly not. If parents are not covenantally faithful in how they bring up their children, and if their children do not embrace the faith of Abraham their father, the genetic relationship alone does no good at all. End quote. Here's another quote. He said, here's Wilson. Do these promises mean that the children of believers are automatically going to heaven? Are the children of elect parents automatically elect themselves? A thoughtful reading of Scripture indicates otherwise, not to mention a brief glance at the experience of some of our Christian friends, end quote. You can see something of the condescending mentality, uh, a window into it in terms of the Doug Wilson movement, Right? He says, not to mention a brief glance at our friends, right? Because their kids are having problems, not our kids. But anyway, finally, another quote from his earlier writings. Put on your safety belt for this one. Quote, We have already established that our children are by nature indistinguishable from all other human children. Paul is not teaching us here, 1 Corinthians 7.14, that our newborn infants are all regenerate and personally holy, he is teaching us their covenantal status. They are holy by virtue of their placement in a covenanted family. Let's stop there. This is, for the most part, pretty straightforward uh, confessional reform teaching here. He goes on, quote, Because we cannot talk to infants in order to find out their thoughts and convictions, We do not know what their actual status is. Some of them may indeed be regenerate. John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit from the womb, Luke 1.15. At the same time, because we cannot see the heart, it is impossible for us to assume anything about an infant's personal standing before God. He goes on, wise parents will therefore not assume that their child is automatically regenerate, neither will they assume the opposite. They will evaluate their child's life and profession in the light of Scripture. He goes on, True covenant children can and do fall away. Birth into a covenant home is by no means an automatic ticket to heaven. For this reason, godly parents want to see their children grow up to a faithful and consistent profession. End quote. So he says if you can't talk to your covenant child in infancy, and they can't talk to you, bookmark that statement. We're going to revisit that. But he says, if if you can't communicate back and forth, they can't make a profession, you can't evaluate your life, don't assume they're regenerate, don't assume they're not regenerate. A wise parent is just not going to assume anything about the spiritual condition because they can't read the heart. 
And so they're just going to evaluate the child's life and profession in light of Scripture. In other words, like we saw that Jonathan Edwards was telling us to do and, and the American Puritans, which Wilson is later going to criticize. So in his earlier writings, there's a lot that you can appreciate that is saying things in some ways better than I could. But in some of these very same books, Wilson promotes an alternate form of presumptive regeneration, namely that God promises to save the children of covenantally faithful parents. So not all baptized children, but all children of covenantally faithful parents. Quote, Nevertheless, we may believe God's word when he tells us that our children have been set apart for him. We must therefore hold to this covenantal promise until we see clear scriptural evidence to the contrary. The wonderful thing is, very key here, listen to this, the wonderful thing is, if we hold to the covenantal promise scripturally, we will not find scriptural evidence to the contrary, end quote. In other words, here he's saying we should assume that they're going to be saved. In other words, maybe not assume that they're regenerate, but assume that they're elect. Let's, let's assume they're going to be regenerated at some point. Assume they're going to show themselves elect. And if we hold to the promise scripturally, then we're not going to see any evidence to the contrary. We're not going to see any evidence that they are not elect. So in other words, they're they're going to be regenerated. Another one, quote, Now many children of believing parents do not become believers themselves. At the same time, children of obedient believers will become believers, end quote. I'm including all these quotes because Wilson, you know, he, he floats like a butterfly and stings like a bee. He's able to maneuver with his language and with his terms and statements in such a way as to sort of hide from accountability. But, but listen, these quotes are crystal clear. Again, another one, quote, the biblical facts are plain. The Bible is full of promises to parents, but the promises are for those parents who are in the covenant, keep the covenant, and who remember his commandments to do them. He goes on, for covenantally faithful parents, because the promise of Scripture cannot be broken, the Lord's gracious calling of our children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren is something in which we can rest, end quote. So there is an unbreakable promise, according to Wilson, that God will save the children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren of covenantally faithful parents. We're gonna, we, we need more quotations because I know some people are thinking, well, maybe, maybe he meant it this way or that way. Listen, quote, Now these glorious promises have been distorted and misapplied to and by nominalistic Christians. But we must not measure covenantal truth by those who are faithless to the covenant, end quote. In other words, uh, if you do the math, if your child rejects the faith, uh, you're a faithless nominalistic Christian. The exceptions to this rule aren't really exceptions, he says, because the people whose children aren't saved, by definition, are nominalistic and faithless. Again, quote, Another possible objection comes from the record of biblical parents. What about Jacob and Esau, for example? He responds, quote, First, the sovereign God is free to make exceptions. If there's an exception, then it's not a promise, right? He's, he's 
stacking up this promise that God will save our children alongside all of God's covenant promises. So God promises to save all who put their trust in Christ. Okay, there are no exceptions to that. God does not fail to keep His promise. His promises are immutable. Some promises are conditional, but the point is if you meet the condition, it's immutable. So you could say, well, um, well, in Wilson's case, he's saying if you're a faithful parent, your children will be saved. It's conditional, but if you meet the condition, that will happen. If it's a promise, then if you meet the condition, it will happen. But if there are exceptions, then it's not a promise. God is not free to break His promise. Earlier He said, Scripture cannot be broken. God is not free to break promises. If, if we believe on Christ, we shall be saved. If Wilson is correct here with this promise that He'll save the children of faithful parents, if you're a faithful parent, then there's no question. Your child will be saved. And when you look at Jacob and Esau, they had the same parents. They were twins. It's like Cain and Abel, same parents. One is elect, one isn't. One's a believer, one isn't. One's in heaven, one's in hell. So if it's contingent on the faithfulness of the parents, this is a valid objection. What do you do with Jacob and Esau? And he says, oh, it's just an exception. But in Romans 9, verse 6, 7, 11, 15 through 18, Paul uses Jacob and Esau not as an exception, but to illustrate the way God deals in every age. That He has mercy on those whom He'll have mercy on, and He hardens those whom He hardens. And not all Israel is of Israel. Not every covenant child is a child of the promise. And read Romans 9. It's not a one-time exception. And even if it was, uh, well, the fact is that, that then it's not a promise if there is an exception. Wilson goes on, quote, If God wanted to teach the sovereignty of election through giving an Esau to obedient parents, He is the Lord. Having established this principle, we may still say that we have no examples from Scripture of parents who submitted to the will of God for their children only to see their children fall away from the grace of God. Isaac, he says, provides a good example of this due to his disobedience with regard to his children, end quote. So essentially he says because Isaac tried to give the blessing and the birthright to Esau, it's Isaac's fault that Esau went to hell. Now, maybe it is partly Isaac's fault, but, but in terms of God's election, it's not contingent upon these things. And you could easily say that Isaac was just as disobedient with respect to Jacob, whom he denied the birthright. So why, did, why was Jacob regenerated? Why was Jacob a believer? Uh, it doesn't make sense. He says there are no scriptural examples. Again, we could point to Cain and Abel had the same parents. We can point to Samuel, whose two sons were ungodly villains. And it never says he was a bad father. We can look at Josiah, one of the most godly men in biblical history. And you look at his sons, who are, most of whom are burning in hell. So I'm not sure what Bible he's reading. Now, in Wilson's later writings, such as Reformed is Not Enough, 2002, and his contribution to the Knox Colloquium, which is printed in that book, the, the Auburn Avenue Theology from 2003. In some of these subsequent writings, Wilson promotes something akin to a word of faith 
approach to presumptive regeneration. Sort of a name it, claim it. If you by faith presume your child's salvation, then he, she cannot possibly be lost. And vice versa. If you don't name it, don't expect to claim it. Quote, Often a great hue and cry is lifted up against presumptive regeneration, but it is not often noticed what happens in the other direction, which is presumptive unregeneration. End quote. Notice, in his earlier writings, he's saying, don't presume anything, yea or nay, because you can't read the heart. Now he's defending presumptive regeneration as really the only alternative to the, the opposite. Quote, we trust God for the salvation of our children, as opposed to the children of the atheist across the street, because we have promises concerning our children. He goes on, as we believe this promise, we receive the fruit of the promise by faith. But some are troubled because we speak so freely of our little ones as Christians, as saints, as heirs of salvation. We speak this way because the covenant requires us. We believe, therefore, we have spoken. Doubting over your children, listen to this, doubting over your children is an excellent way to teach them to doubt. Believing over them enables them to grow up in an environment of believing, end quote. If we translate this in terms of in principle, what it's actually saying, this is no different than believe God for the new sports car, believe God for the job promotion, believe God, believe over your children, go to their crib and just, just emanate believing vibes. God will save my child. God will regenerate my child. But if you don't presume regeneration or election and you don't believe that God will save your child, then guess what? You're you could be to blame. It could be your fault. You're not putting out these believing vibes. You're creating an environment of doubt. Now, what he's saying here would make sense if God promised to save every single covenant child of a faithful parent. But, but the issue is God has never promised that. He's got all these books that he writes. Not once does he quote a verse that even remotely says that. As we've seen with Romans 9, it's quite the opposite. While we should have an optimism regarding covenant children, no doubt about it, we have optimism. Uh, God gives us children. He desires godly offspring. If we're faithful, we can expect to see the fruit of our labors as a general promise. But there is no absolute guarantee that all the children of faithful covenant parents will be saved. So this is, this is why this is wrong. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, if God did promise believers a job promotion whenever they wanted it, it would be right to believe for it, right? I mean, He's promised the forgiveness of sins if we believe in Christ, and it's right for us to name and claim that because He's promised it. But see, the problem here is God has never made a, a universal promise of that nature to save every covenant child of every faithful parent. So, so again, it's a name it, claim it, word of faith type of teaching. Uh, listen, he, he, he tries to defend this. Quote, In faith, we want to say that children of believers are saved. But we are not making a categorical statement of the all PRQ kind. We are saying that we believe God's statements and promises concerning covenant children, and we think others should believe them too. We baptize on the basis of the parents' willingness to profess this faith. End quote. 
So they baptize children on the basis of the parents' willingness to profess a belief that God will save their children. He's, he's saying it doesn't mean God will save every covenant child, all P or Q, but he's saying you're to believe this for your child. Why is that? Well, because you can't control whether the other people are covenantally faithful, but you can control that for yourself in his mind. So you should be able to say, I believe God will save my child. I believe my child is elect. Listen to this next quote. Wilson, God makes no promise whatever to our theological system that would enable us to say that all children of duly baptized parents will necessarily go to heaven. So promises are given to the parents. They are graciously invited to exercise this faith faith that is warranted from the promises of Scripture concerning their children. Now listen how he illustrates this. Quote, But imagine a baptismal service like this. Minister, do you believe that God has given believing parents covenant promises concerning the salvation of their children? Father, well, I don't know exactly. Who's to say if my kid is elect? Minister, just say yes. Father, yes. That's what Wilkins is teach, Wilson's teaching here. You should believe. In fact, they baptize the children of parents on account of the fact that their parents believe that their child is elect. Again, quote, a baptismal service is personal. No one is being asked to affirm general propositions about the eternal destiny of all children of the covenant. The parent is being asked to appropriate the promises of God for one child. Do you, Mr. Smith, believe what God has said about this child, Billy Smith? If Mr. Smith does not, but goes through the motions anyway, then let God be true and every man a liar. But if he really believes, the last thing I would want to accuse him of is denying sola fide, faith alone. Just as we believe the promises, we teach our children to believe the promises. But we cannot teach them to believe by teaching them to doubt, end quote. Well, what is he teaching them to believe? That they're sinners and that Jesus died for sinners and rose again so they could be saved? Or to believe that their baptism saved them or that God has promised to save them? See, Wilson takes the biblical gospel of what Christ has done and he replaces it with this promise that God will save this specific person. So notice when he's talking about faith alone, the, faith, the content of that faith in this quotation is that God will save my child. And so the parent is, is believing God will save my child. And then they're teaching their child to believe. God has promised to save me. And if you don't have your child baptized, presuming that election or regeneration of your child, you're under the covenantal curse of God. Let God be true and every man a liar. Well, if that's true, everyone who holds the Reformed confessional biblical view, all their kids would go to hell, right? But that's not the case. But for Wilson, denying presumptive election or regeneration will provoke God's just wrath. Let God be true. And that's Romans 3. That's God's curse, which is said to be brought on people who don't believe the gospel, not on people who don't affirm a belief in presumptive regeneration. Another one, quote, can we fulfill our covenant responsibilities by believing and yet have God fail to fulfill his promise? It is not possible. This is the historic Presbyterian view of children in the covenant, end quote. 
No, it's not the historic view. But notice he's saying it's impossible. There are no exceptions. I thought Esau was an exception. Well, who knows? But he's saying it's not possible if you're faithful for your child to go to hell. By the way, that allusion to the historic view, Wilson basically in most of his writings uh, just cuts and pastes from an erroneous polemical book by Lewis Bevins Shank called The The Presbyterian Doctrine of Children in the Covenant. It's an old book that uh, deserves to collect dust on the shelf that misrepresents Calvin and our Reformed heritage significantly, but Wilson is constantly cutting and pasting it, and uh, federal visionists as well do that. But this is not the historic view. Again, Wilson, quote, if we believe God when he says that he made us one with our wives so that, we, so that he could have godly offspring, then we should act as though we believe it. This means that we should teach our children to believe it. Notice it is not the gospel. It is that God promises to save children of faithful covenant parents. And this means in turn that they should never know a time when they did not love and honor Jesus Christ, love his gospel, and love his church. If we do anything else with our children, we're teaching them to doubt not to believe end quote. Oh, wouldn't it be great if our children never knew a day, if that was universally the case? But, but Wilson's saying, if it's not the case, it's your fault. You're not faithful. You're not believing. Again, quote, baptism is always to be taken by the one baptized as a sign and seal of his engrafting into Christ. If the person is reprobate, he will refuse to do so and will be cut out of the vine. Let's stop there. What makes a person reprobate for Wilson? Not denying the gospel, Jesus Christ died to save sinners. No, denying presumptive regeneration, denying that my baptism engrafted me into Christ. It's so convoluted. He goes on, if he is elect, he cannot be cut out. An unbelieving covenant member incurs all the curses of the covenant while the believer appropriates all its blessings by faith alone, end quote. But again, that faith is not in the gospel. It's in and I, I say this hesitatingly, I don't think Wilson is an out-and-out heretic, okay? But in a way, it's another gospel. It's, it, it's presumptive regeneration as opposed to the finished work of Christ. It's a different doctrine that he's even referring to here. Now, Wilson frequently makes irresponsible and misleading statements about the Westminster Standards. Quote, raise your hand if you knew that the Westminster Confession taught baptismal regeneration end quote. Okay, I don't see anybody raising their hands, but remember earlier he said, he you know, imagine the day when nobody would ever accuse an evangelical paedo-baptist of holding to baptismal regeneration. And now he's saying the Westminster Confession teaches that. Mr. Wilson has been changing in his theology over the years, wouldn't you say? Again, quote, I do not believe that Confession of Faith 29.8 excludes child communion. It seems clear that the ignorance addressed, at least here, is a culpable, stiff-necked ignorance and not the ignorance which every worthy partaker of the supper confesses daily, end quote. So here, I mean, you can look up the reference in the confession there, but he's basically saying Westminster, at least in this part that deals with fencing the table, is, is not precluding the idea of paedo-communion. Uh, he's trying to reconcile paedo-communion with the Westminster standards. We'll deal with that uh, in a future 
lecture, but you could see these irresponsible and misleading statements. Now, I'm going to skip this section where Wilson condemns the American Puritans of the Great Awakening. I may come back to that later, but I I want to finish up with point number seven. I'm going to finish up with point number seven, but let me just read point six, quotation C, that transitions us into the end of the lecture here. But you got to hear this one. Quote, Just a short time ago, another grandchild came to his first observance of the Lord's Supper. I know this is troublesome to some readers, but please bear with me for a moment. He is a year and a half old and doesn't really talk yet. Remember, he said if if you can't talk with your kids, you can't know if they're saved. But I guess that's changed. He is a year and a half old and doesn't really talk yet. But he worships with his family throughout our worship service and he has a basic sign language catechism down. Where is Jesus? He pats his heart. Where is God? He points to heaven. Are you baptized? He pats his head. At the conclusion of our worship service, we all sing the Gloria Patri with hands upraised, which he used to do also. But as he began to notice the communion tray going by, and he didn't get any, his 18-month-old kid, it began to distress him. About a month before he came to the table, he stopped raising his hands in the Gloria Patri and just watched. He was starting to learn how to observe as a detached outsider. An 18-month-old kid, right? When it was decided he should come to the table, says Wilson, he was carefully instructed in the meaning of the supper as he held the bread. When he partook together with his family, one of the first things he did was pat the heads of everyone around him. Mother, father, grandmother. We are all baptized, he said, discerning the body. At the glory of Patry, his hands shot up in the air. Glory to God indeed. So we believe the terms of the covenant and we believe that God has promised us our children. We talk like we believe it because we do. End quote. So here's Doug Wilson, the baby whisperer, discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart of an 18-month-old. But apparently, we can't evaluate the profession of faith of an 18-year-old. Right? That's mystical. Uh, we, can't, we can't look into people's heart. We should let, you know, let them all come to the table. The American Puritans and Jonathan Edwards were all wrong because we can't really evaluate the profession of faith of an 18-year-old to see if they have the fruit of conversion. But we can read the mind of an 18-month-old. And I am restraining with every bone in my body and a, a temptation to, to say more and about that. It's ridiculous. We're just going to leave it there. But that's Doug Wilson with his view of covenant children. Now, final section. This is crucial. Wilson, like many other federal visionists, seeks to label confessional pedo-baptists as Baptists. Now, I love Baptists. If somebody calls me a Baptist, I won't necessarily take that as an offense. I know a lot of wonderful Baptists. If you compare me to Paul Washer, I'll take that as a compliment. But, but the point is, this is a reproach. This is a condescending thing. He seeks to label confessional pedo-baptists as Baptists, despite the fact that his own congregation does not even require infant baptism. Talk about a halfway covenant. You can join his church and you don't have to have your children baptized. They've made a deal with the Baptists and uh, you can see the elder protocols in footnote number 11. 
Quote, when a child in a Baptistic home comes to a personal profession of faith in the Lord, the parents should notify the elders and confirm to them their child's profession of faith. Interesting how the parents mediate the whole thing. We're going to have to look into that later. The elders, it says, will arrange for the baptism of the child and he will then come to the Lord's table, end quote. So they allow pedo communion, but they don't even require infant baptism. Halfway covenant. That's, you know, but, but we're all Baptists. Anyway, also, his earlier paedo-Baptist writings, as we saw, feature many of the assertions which he now labels as Baptistic. Listen to this quote. This is in the, in the height of the Federal Vision controversy. Quote, We are in the midst of a truly odd controversy. In some respects, I feel as disoriented as if I left a native home in Ohio to join the Army of Northern Virginia because of my Copperhead convictions. When, uh, but then when I got there, I was quickly confused because I discovered that a large part of General Lee's staff had taken to wearing blue. I grew up in a Baptistic home, and when I finally arrived in Presbyterian and Reformed circles, one of the things I was surprised to find, Baptists, end quote. He says that when he became Presbyterian, since he held these views of children in the covenant and presumptive regeneration, and he held this confessional view of baptismal regeneration, he says. And, and since he held these things when he first came into the Pado baptist community, he was shocked that other people didn't hold them. And yet we see that that is a flat-out fabrication because his earlier writings repudiate the things that he says, if you don't hold this, you're a Baptist. Okay, He was saying the same things that if you say them to him now, he calls you a Baptist. He didn't come to the Pado baptist community holding these federal vision distinctives. Why would, why would Doug Wilson give us a false narrative? I don't know. You can ask him. But I think it's clear that this is not accurate. Quote, Moreover, those who have charged us in the name of the confession are themselves out of conformity with the teachings of the confession on this point. I do not believe them to be heretics for doing this, just Zwinglians or wet dedication Baptists. Neither do I believe them to be dishonest men, just honest Christian men steeped in the traditions of American revivalism, end quote. Uh, Yet his earlier writings affirm those so-called Zwinglian statements. I mean, go back. Remember, he's saying water baptism is not sacred in itself. It doesn't save. It doesn't regenerate. Interesting. Now, This is the the moral of the story. We go back to Michael Horton's interview with Wilson in 2005 on the White Horse Inn podcast because here's the issue. Wilson behaves like an independent Baptist personality cult guru, like a sort of a Bill Gothard or something like that because he goes through these phases and stages of theology and all of his little lemming lapdogs go with him and they go through all these different ups and downs and buy into this entire false narrative. And Horton does a great job of bringing Doug Wilson into the principal's office in this interview. Listen to Horton. Quote, It all seems so quirky. Not only the positions, but the way it all operates. You draw up your own confession. Let me stop there. Quote C, section 7. Listen to Wilson. Quote, I currently subscribe to the Reformed Evangelical Confession which is a group of confessions pieced together when we founded the CREC. Part of it is a short creed based on the Westminster Shorter Catechism, but there are other aspects of it, such as our church's statement of faith, 
from 15 to 20 years ago, which I had a hand in writing and so on. So I'm currently under the Reformed Evangelical Confession, which I helped to write, end quote. There's a lot of accountability. He basically authored the confession of his own church and his own denomination. So I would challenge these people that say, well, I'm part of the CREC. I don't know much about Doug Wilson. You better find out who he is because you're part of a group that's very, very troubling. Nevertheless, uh, Horton, back to the principal's office. You draw up your own confession. You start your own church, then your own denomination, then your own publishing house. Is there a theme running throughout that uh, here that basically this is a movement that moves back and forth a little too closely tethered to you and a small group of people who are going through different phases of thought and constantly revising positions and saying, well, I don't really mean that, or that was perhaps not said the best way, or our critics don't really understand us. At some point, says Horton, are critics fair when they say, we have checks and balances on what we do and what we say to a much larger extent, and that's healthy, end quote. So do you, do you want to be a confessionalist or a Wilsonite? And that's basically what, what he's saying. Now here's Wilson's response. Quote, I begin with a mea culpa. So for example, if someone says, this just seems really quirky, I would say, you're right, it really is. If you saw what our worship service looked like in 1977, you'd say, we'll let Charlie Brown fill that one in, minced oath, What's going on? What's with these people? So yeah, it is quirky. God called us out of a quirky background. It was the 70s. It was weird. It was dark. They were big. So there's one level where I don't have any problem admitting the justice of the perception. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that we sort of scrambled out of this hole that we were in, this Jesus people thing, and we came into the Reformed faith looking like someone had pulled us backward through the hedge, and that's admitted. But God has blessed us, and a number of things have happened. And we've daughtered churches around the country. And while we subscribe to the Reformed Evangelical Confession, almost all of our daughter churches that we've planted subscribe to the Westminster Confession. And the CREC is now all over the country. Actually, there's a CREC church in Japan, and one being planted in Bulgaria. And there's 30 congregations or so across the United States. They're now up to like 100 or so. He goes on, all this is building up to say that it's decreasingly connected to us and to me. God in his sovereignty called us out of a weird situation and we wanted to be as faithful as we could with that. And if anybody looks out and says that's just plain bizarre, we would confess it with them. It embarrasses me to think about some of the things we used to do, including when we were feeling our way in our first years in the Reformed faith. Absolutely. Guilty as charged, basically, but we do want to be connected with the broader reform body and we're not wanting to be standoffish and we do admit that we've got some quirks, end quote. Now, what could be so wrong with that? Well, Doug Wilson in the principal's office might possibly be tolerable. The problem is once Doug Wilson leaves the principal's office where he's being humble and you know, thinking about all the, the quirky aspects of, of what he's been up to and and just humbling himself in front of everybody, after he leaves the principal's office and goes to his blog, may blog, bully pulpit, and promotes himself as the man with all the answers, that's the problem. If Doug Wilson's ministry was characterized by this type of 
statement that he makes to Horton, I don't think we would even be worried about it. But he presents himself like on his new book with this leather jacket and a quote from the New York Times saying that he's a reformed lumberjack or something like that. You know, he's promoting himself and, you know, as a sort of know-it-all reformed figure all over social media, all over YouTube. So again, the problem is not what he says here to Horton. We might be gracious with him. It's that when you turn on his videos, I hope you don't, but if you do, is this the Doug Wilson you're seeing? A guy who says, oh, it's just a bunch of quirks, don't mind us. Or is it the guy who claims to have all the answers to solve the world's problems? That's the issue. Uh, I do want to take at least one question. If you have a question, maybe you don't, but we're way over time. Yes. Yes, uh, the, the question of whether um, the qualification for an elder that, that he have faithful or believing children, I think this, I mean, he, of course, he could try to use that, although that would only prove as a qualification for eldership. I suppose he could then argue that it's exemplary for the godly man in general. But I, I think the issue here is that that passage is not generally interpreted to mean that our children will necess- of necessity believe if we're faithful. I think the idea there is that they're submissive, that they reflect the order and stability of, of the head of the household, and that they're teachable. I mean, I've never seen a five-year-old child jump up in the middle of a service and yell, God doesn't exist. You know, children do tend at a certain basic human level to receive what we're saying and we're disciplining and we're teaching. So I think there's the idea that, that if there's a, a huge problem with his children that's becoming a scandal in the life of the church, that that would uh, disqualify him. But, but that's a good point. That could be raised. I think Samuel, Samuel was not disqualified from office for his children. I mean, I think there are examples we could show to the contrary in terms of holding church office. But um, yeah, we would be, just, to, just to say in closing, the Bible, I think, gives us a very optimistic picture. It's not like Jacob and Esau means we should expect 50-50. You know, you have eight kids, four leave the faith. We're not saying that. Maybe all eight of them profess faith. But if you look at, uh, you know, 50 to 100 covenant children, you're going to have some children of faithful parents that go astray. And that is a reality. We should be optimistic, but we don't have the right to presume that all of our children are elect or regenerate. That is in the hands of God alone. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that the church has one foundation and that it is Jesus Christ. We pray that you would prevent us from being led astray by those who seem persuasive, by those who seem charismatic and winsome and wise, that we would uh, not sell our birthright, that we would not turn away from Christ in whom we have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We ask in his name. Amen.